Well, we're considering uh, this series for these next few weeks. Uh, we've called it God Rocks. Uh, and one of the things that we saw right at the very beginning is that the reality is, the truth is, that God, uh, a, true, um, a true engagement with the God of the Bible, as opposed to an observation of God, really rocks our world. Rocks us in so many ways. Uh, and the first point that we saw, and the foundation, if you like, for the rest of the development of this, is that when we really come to terms with the God that is described in the Bible, the, the eternal God, the creator of all things, and the God who is at the same time not seen, apart from in Jesus, when we come to terms, when we are confronted with that God, we fall on our face in worship. Worship is a, the natural. Worship is the appropriate. Worship is the beginning response. Why is that? Why is it that worship is the foundational response to the God of the Bible? Uh, it's because if we are worshipping anything other than God, the Bible says that we are idolaters. And we, we do worship other things. Principally, we worship ourselves. And we worship ourselves through other things that we make God. You say, well, you know, we look at the ancients, don't we? We look at the messages that we see or the stories in the Bible and we see it's really easy to talk about gods in the past. Because gods were carved in stone or, or cast in precious metals or, or carved out of, out of trees or creation itself is worshipped. And we're just beyond that. We're beyond that. I don't, we are not beyond that. We're not even close to getting beyond that. We are absolutely and consistently behaving in the same way as the ancients have always behaved and as humanity has always behaved. And it is the worship of ourselves through the, through the creation of gods which are designed to be there to serve us. And here's how it works. I'm an ancient and I've got a great big patch of land. My future depends, literally depends on a good crop. I, I might die if I don't have a good crop. And so I would go and I would serve and worship some sort of a God to assure me that my crop is going to be successful so that I will be served. You see? I, I, I set up something which is going to deliver for me hope. And we still do that. We still look for survival in this world. We still look for hope in this world by the things that we create or the things that we identify which we are determined must be there for us to survive. You know what, what ultimately, if it was taken away from you, would you think, that's it. I, I, I don't want to be here anymore. That is your God. But your God is there because it is serving you. <laughs> and, and any real relationship with the God that the Bible describes, and it's a consistent message as we see the God of the Bible unfolded through the pages, 
we see that God calls a people and he says, right now, do not worship any other God apart from me because I am your God. I am a jealous God. Jealousy is a good thing in its right context. To be loved by somebody has to have an element of jealousy. They are jealous for your love and they rightly are jealous for your love. And you are rightly jealous for their love because it belongs to you, in a sense, that love. Jealousy can be a good thing. Yeah, I know it can be overplayed. But God's jealousy is righteous. It's a good jealousy where he says, because you are my people, I I want you to address your affections towards me because I am the one who has saved you. And we see unfolded that the people of God repeatedly look elsewhere. What we see is that when they come to terms with God again, and when individual stories come to terms with God, it results with um, a letting go of ourselves, a falling in worship before God, and in that we find hope. And we find security. That's the pattern. When we let go of ourselves, we feel insecure until we realize that we are held by God and that is the greatest security we can ever have. So we have this issue. That for that to change, for that shift to take place, for me no longer to be on the throne of my life and for God to be on the throne of my life, means that my life, my my very being, needs to be rocked. Now we saw that worship is the very foundation, and then we've been working it out in in practical ways. How is that seen? And the one that we're going to look at this afternoon is, uh, a true encounter with God rocks my relationships. A true encounter with God rocks my relationships. I'm going to turn to this uh, little section that we saw earlier. Luke chapter uh, 12, verse 49 says this, I have come to bring fire on the earth, and how I wish it were already kindled. But I have a baptism to undergo, and what constraint I am under until it is completed. Do you think I have come to bring peace on earth? If, If you said to somebody... What did Jesus come to bring? What's the Christmas story all about? And we actually read (laughs) that Jesus comes, in a sense, to bring peace. And now he says, you think I've come to bring peace? You think I've come to bring peace? No, I tell you. But division... Does that shock you? I mean, these, these are hard words, aren't they? These are hard words. One of the things that we see in the Bible is that as Jesus was teaching so many people, he had thousands of people following him, and there was a point at which they said, these are, this is just too hard, and they stopped following him. Here's the reality. Jesus' message And following Jesus is not a soft, cushy, cutesy, lovely number. It is real. (laughs) It includes stuff that is tough to hear. It includes stuff that, yes, it rocks us. 
He goes on to say this. From now on, there will be five in one family divided against each other, three against two and two against three. They will be divided father against son, son against father, mother against daughter, daughter against mother, mother mother-in-law against daughter-in-law, daughter-in-law against mother-in-law. It's as though he is painting a picture where he is saying the the closest, the most intimate uh, relationships are going to get rocked. Now that is really important that we see what Jesus is saying here. Because when we hear these words, it sounds as though, is Jesus saying, right, therefore, we're on, we're on a journey here where we can justify all sorts of crisis and conflict in the name of Christianity. Does Jesus say, right, if you start to follow me, all of those nations out there, you're going to be in conflict with? No, he brings it right to home. And he says the conflict is is with those who are closest, with those who are the most intimate. Now that is tough, that is hard, isn't it, to hear? Before we get too carried away and we think that this is just impossible, let me just put a great big stop sign up and say, that is going on in the world, outside of the Christian faith, all over the place. Family relationship, the closest family relationships are in crisis, relational crisis. So this is something which is being said in the context of a world where that is happening anyway. I was reading um, that Steve Jobs, Steve Jobs is featuring on a few occasions and I want to make the point I am definitely not picking on Steve Jobs, not at all, but it's a very helpful picture because he is so well known. He was so well known. He said, he used his last interview, I read in, I think it was the New York Times, he used his last interview to explain to his children why he hadn't always been there. To explain what he had done undoubtedly the impact that that man, one man, has had on this world is massive. He's changed the world. Steve Jobs changed the world. No doubt about it. But he used his last interview to tell his children why he hadn't always been there for them. One of his closest friends, in fact, the person who he went out for his last meal with, was interviewed and and he said this, that Steve Jobs loved having kids. He said it was 10,000 times better than anything that he had done, having children. And yet he used his last interview to say why he hadn't been there. Isn't that incredible? We are continually, guys, girls, Whatever your careers might be, you might be on a journey where you are making decisions, where you are sacrificing relationships. You are looking at other things and you are making a decision. And I know, I know the demands of work. I know the constraints that it puts us under. I know that there are demands which means that we are continually fighting this balance this how do I keep all of these things together but there are some of us who are saying I will sacrifice that relationship I will sacrifice that relationship 
for this career move or for this, uh, this opportunity or whatever it might be. So let's not get carried away and say, Jesus is telling us to do something that we wouldn't naturally be doing. It's happening all over the place. We are making sacrifices because we are determining that certain things are a priority. The sad thing is that Steve Jobs actually had not always been in relationship with his children. He had denied that he was the father of, of his daughter. In fact, court papers say that he had insisted in court papers that he was sterile and therefore he couldn't be the father of his daughter in the early part of his career while he was working at Hewlett-Packard. It was only much later in life when they were reconciled, which is great. But he had made a decision back then. And we are making decisions. We are reaching points in our lives where there are certain things where we were saying, okay, it's this or it's that relationship. It's happening all over the place. And there are times when we can do it for the wrong motivations. And the reality is there are times when we have to do it for the right motivations. There are times when, you know, you've been in the conversations where, where parents have said, with, with children who have taken to various addictions, where they have said, the most loving thing I can do right now is to sacrifice this relationship. And Jesus says, right, you need to understand that being a follower of me, this is the reality. Jesus says, on the one hand I've come to bring peace, and on the other hand right now he says, I have not come to bring peace. This little section is fascinating. Calvin put it like this. John Calvin said, I'll paraphrase it, basically he said this. If being a Christian was an easy thing, and everybody accepted it, there would never be these verses. <laughs> Isn't that so simple? Doesn't that kind of change everything? If we take it back to where we were saying earlier on, if we are saying that sacrifice of myself from the throne of, my, of the rule of my life it, and Jesus now ruling my life is the very essence of relationship with him, isn't it inevitable that that means that that is going to be disrupting for other people around us? That is going to bring tension. When I am, let's put it this way, when I am in close relationship with people and I am serving myself and serving them as a priority, when I am finding my fulfillment and my satisfaction in making sure that all of those who are mine around me are absolutely top priority, and then suddenly, wham, Jesus comes into my life, and there is this dramatic shift of priority, this dramatic shift of allegiance where I am no longer my greatest allegiance. Jesus is my greatest allegiance. Do you think that that can happen without some people around us being really upset by it? Calvin said it can't. 
It just can't happen. Because when Jesus rocks our world, when Jesus rocks our life, it has a ripple effect outwards, doesn't it? That's what Jesus is saying. He is not saying, if you follow me, you are now to become antagonistic to everybody around you. Not in a million years. He's saying this. When you start to serve me, when you make me your first allegiance, you need to understand that that will have profound effects for those around you. It will have profound effects. And that will create separation, disruption, division, relationship crisis at the closest and most intimate. Jesus said this at one point. Quite openly, he said, do you realize that to follow me, you have to take up your cross? It is going to cost. When he said that, when you, when you think about those words, Jesus saying, take up your cross, where does that take our minds? Jesus took up his cross and it took him to death, didn't it? That's where it ended up. His cross took him to death. And now Jesus says, right, now you take up your cross. In other words, you die to yourself. To be a follower of me is going to cost you. I, I want to make it really clear. To be a follower of Jesus is going to cost. Don't think it's a light, easy, frivolous thing. It's going to cost. It is a great challenge. Jesus says that is what is going to happen. And that is because you will find that your allegiance has been redirected. And whenever your allegiance has been redirected, you will cause challenge around. You say, well, how do we work that out then? How, what else does Jesus say to help us in this? Look at, let's have a look at what he carries on he says. He says to the crowd... When you see a cloud rising in the west, immediately you say it's going to rain, and it does. And when the south wind blows, you say it's going to be hot, and it is. Hypocrites. You know how to interpret the appearance of the earth and the sky. How is it that you don't know how to interpret this present time? Now, to some extent, that is... Spoken to a whole load of people who've got the, the Hebrew Bible in front of them and they've been told about the, the prospect of Jesus coming right the way along and now Jesus arrives and there's this huge disruption. There is disruption going on. We actually find that, that, that Jesus is at this point in relationship tension with his own family, actually. With his own family, his brothers and sisters, are challenged by what he is and who he is. So he's not saying this as some kind of, you know, float above and it doesn't affect me. He's going through it himself. He's in that situation. But, but they're looking at it and saying, 
okay, you can interpret that it's going to be hot if the south wind is blowing, which it does in that particular part of the world because it, it pulls all of the hot air off the Sahara Desert uh, and, and it gets hot where they are. You, can, you know if it's a south wind, it's going to get hot. You know if there's a cloud in the sky, it's going to get to rain. There are things which you know. Shouldn't you realize that everything that has gone before should mean that the point where I arrive will be equally disruptive? That's the point that he's making. Now here's the thing, and how does that apply to us? I think it applies at least in this way. None of us can get away from the fact that Jesus of Nazareth is the most contentious person in history. He just is. He is the most contentious person in the whole of this world's history as an individual living person. Nobody else has been more contentious. Nobody else in the history of this world has had such a global impact and continues to have a global impact. Jesus continues to have the kind of impact that he had in those days. In, in fact, on a greater scale, actually. The impact that he is having in, in China at the moment is massive. Just massive. A, t a country which was just opposed to the Christian faith, ideologically opposed, is being turned upside down at the moment. <laughs> I was fascinated. We were watching... Um, oh, no, I've said it now. <laughs> I've admitted to it. Um, we were watching ice skating. <laughs> we, just, we were just flick channel surfing, honestly. Surf, surfing through the sports channels. Ice skating came on. But do you know what? There was a Chinese competitor who was ice dancing to Amazing Grace with, on the front of her top, a great big white cross. That is massive for one of their greatest stars to be a self-proclaimed believer in Jesus. It is turning China upside down at the moment. South Korea, the most technically, technologically advanced country in the world, it is argued, is being turned upside down by the message of Jesus. So let's not get the idea that this is just an ancient thing. This is happening now, today. And Jesus continues to be the most provocative, the most controversial, the most life-changing individual from the whole of history. Now let's put it like this. Jesus says you can interpret when the weather's going to change. Can't you interpret? Can't you read the signs of my, my very being? Just, just stop and think. If you can see a cloud that tells you that it's going to rain, can't you see that the most controversial person in the whole of human history has got something to say today? You do that. Do you re realize the impact of Jesus? He is that person. He continues to be that person who is shaking things up. And we're hypocritical when we say, I'm going to root everything on what the weather's going to be. I'm going to believe that. And we can't look back and say, one person, I've got to look into that.
I've got to consider it. And that's basically what he's saying. He is significant. Now, he goes on to say, how significant am I? How significant is Jesus? How does this connect with the next little bit of the story? He tells this and he talks about earth and sky and sun and heat and all of that. And then he goes on with this little story. Why don't you judge for yourselves what is right? As you are going with your adversary to the magistrate, try hard to be reconciled on the way. Or your adversary may drag you off to the judge and the officer throw you into prison. I tell you, you will not get out until you have paid the last penny. Why would Jesus say that? having just talked about his own identity. Because he is saying quite simply this, you know, be prepared because you are going to stand before the judge. My presence is not significant just for the years of my life, for you as an individual. My presence is eternally significant for you. So you better get it right. He's saying, in effect, we are all living our lives today on a journey to the judge. (laughs) We're all in our lives today on a journey of being brought before the one who will judge us. And the portrait that that is painted in this little section says this. It's somebody who's going along with their adversary. And they get before the judge, and the judge finds them guilty. And Jesus is saying, my presence is a warning to you that you are on a journey to stand before your judge. And the outcome will be that you are guilty. Therefore, the outcome of that for somebody in this world, in the ancient world, is that you would be thrown into prison. It's debtor's prison that he's describing here. See the way it's worked out. You can stay in that prison for just as long as it takes for your debt to be paid. See that? Verse 59, I tell you, you will not get out until you have paid the last penny. So there's a way to get out, paying the price. And in in the ancient days, that's how it worked. You'd end up in prison. Your family would be responsible to pay the debt so that you would be allowed to get out. Because you couldn't pay the debt from prison, couldn't you? Could you? You, you, were, you were helpless in that. You were in prison, in debt, and your family would have to go away, and they would resolve all the issues, pay the debt, and then you would be allowed to go free. And that's fine in this world, Jesus is saying, but just think about it. When that comes into the eternal dimension, when you find yourself in a prison, awaiting for the debt to be paid, what's it saying? You need help from outside because you can't pay your debt. Only in the eternal dimension, there is no one there to pay the debt. There is no family outside. When you get to the point where you reach the judge and he finds you guilty, and you find yourself now in a situation where you are in prison paying your debt... The Bible describes that as separation from God, uh, as, as the responsibility of where we find ourselves by being in this world adversaries of him, rebels towards him, 
We are banished from him for all of eternity in a debtor's prison where we will continue to be there until the debt is paid. The only problem is there's no one out there to pay the debt for us. That's the problem. And this comes all the way back round to relationship. Because we would ask ourselves at that point, wouldn't we, if this is a picture of the way it's going to be, if there is a picture there that there is, uh, if you like, an eternal prison, but we're on a journey now, is it possible that the debt might be paid now, as he describes? That's what he says. Sort it out while you're on the way. Get, get yourself sorted with your adversary while you're on the way. And that is precisely what he says in the opening section. And that is what ties us to the very beginning. You go back to verse 49. Verse 49, we come back to this. Because this, if you like, this is where it starts. Jesus says this. I have come to bring fire on the earth. We think about that. We think of it as destructive, don't we? In actual fact, I think this is refining. I think this is purifying. Very often in the Bible, that is a picture of purifying, cleansing. Fire is used, was used far more in the ancient world. Uh, it was used, it's still used in certain parts of the world to, to purge farmland. You know, you grow for a year, then you burn, the, you burn the stubble off, and that continues to be the case. I, I think it's banned in this country now, but it's purging the land, clearing the land, so that those fresh uh, seeds can, can then grow in a, in a newly sort of cleansed land. Uh, we see it in gold. How do you refine gold? Well, you burn it and burn it and burn it and burn it because you can't destroy gold in a fire. Uh, and the pure, the more you burn it, the more pure the gold becomes. It's that refining picture. And Jesus is saying, I've come to bring purity by fire. I wish it was already there. How is it going to be achieved? Well, the way it's going to be achieved he says, is by my baptism. He's saying in a sense that fire is the, is the way in which purging takes place. Fire is the way in which cleansing takes place. And then he says, but I've got an immersing to do. That's what's meant by that word baptism at that point. It's not Jesus, is ba he's already baptized by this point. He's saying, I've got an immersing to do. I've got to be immersed in that fire. I've got to be immersed in that purging. I've got to be burnt out. I've got to be destroyed. I've got to be the one who sits in that fire and is purged. Uh, why? So that you might be in relationship with me. That's what it's about. Oh, relationships might become stretched in this world. They might. But it's because a new relationship, an eternal relationship, a relationship of eternal significance is forged because Jesus himself purges and at the same time, immerses himself in the purging. 
He, he, if you like, in his baptism, he carries, if you like, let's make it very personal. Let's talk about my own situation. I have all of the guilt and failure and rebellion that Jesus is describing is necessary to be purged out. And if the fire of God is purging me out, and if he burns me out, there is no good left. Once he's done the burning, there's nothing left. I'm a goner. So are you. I'm a goner. When Jesus' burning takes place, I'm done. But when Jesus steps into my place and bears my guilt and Jesus stands and then falls under the burning power of purging of his father, he's burnt out. My guilt is burnt out. But something stays. His righteousness. His purity becomes my purity. How amazing is that? When he is burnt out, there's something left. All of, all of my guilt goes with him. But his beauty, his purity, when he gets baptized in the fire of God, when he gets baptized, immersed in the fire of God, the purging fire of God, good emerges. And I end up in that relationship. And Jesus says, now listen, <laughs> that is a relationship which is eternally significant. And if you like, you're on the way to the judge, you'd better sort it out with your adversary. Because right now I'm your adversary, because I am saying, confronting you with your issue of rebellion, but I don't have to remain your adversary. I can be your saviour as well, is what he's saying. And in becoming your saviour, I will forge a relationship with you which is eternal. You will become accepted. You will live forever. And you know what? This is the one relationship crisis unlike Steve Jobs unlike the decisions that you and I make which cause relationship strains this is the one relationship crisis which stands any chance of resolving the issues of relationship anyway it's the only one that could possibly solve the issues of relationship Jesus says there's going to be division. It might be father and son and mother and daughter and, and mother-in-law and daughter-in-law and father and or every dimension of relationship might be at stake here. <laughs> but you know what? I am the one that will restore those. I am the only hope of any restoration in that. Nate Saint, story I'm... I'm I've, told you, you probably know it, I think it's the most amazing story to describe this. Nate Saint was a missionary who was uh, murdered in South America. He went to try to make contact with uh, a very dangerous, murderous tribe. And him and his fellow workers were killed. His son went in, back in, ultimately, Nate Saint's son, Steve Saint, ultimately went back in 
to work with that tribe, with his auntie. Now, ultimately happened. Steve Saint's son was baptized by the man that killed his father. Relationship crisis? Or is it ultimately that relationship in Jesus is the only one that possibly stands a chance of bringing reconciliation? And it will when all of us are reconciled in Jesus. Because it is the only one that dethrones myself and enthrones him. Jesus will rock our relationships. But only because our relationship is now secured in him. Eternally. And that is the greatest news that we can ever know.